Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. What is the link between the shape of the athlete's hip and developing hip osteoarthritis later in life? What does the best research say about what works for managing hip problems in athletes? How can clinicians and athletes work together to promote healthy, happy hips? Dr. Josh Heary, physiotherapist and research fellow at La Trobe University's Sport and Exercise Medicine Research Centre, has thought deeply about the answers to these questions through his clinical career and through his PhD research. Josh's clinical and research work focuses on treating hip and groin pain in active people, so he is the perfect person to help us navigate these questions. And if you'd like more on hip shape, especially cam morphology and femoroacetabular impingement syndrome, you'll love our chat with sports and exercise medicine physician, Dr. Paul Dykstra, from episode 105. Okay, here's today's episode. Dr. Josh Heary, thanks for joining me on JOSPT Insights. Pleasure to be with you, Claire. It's great. It's great to have you, Josh. And today we're talking hip osteoarthritis and in particular the links between hip joint loading in younger years and the risk of developing hip OA later in life. How common is hip osteoarthritis in people who've played sport, Josh? What, what, we, what we know from most studies is that in particular that if you've played at an elite level of your chosen sport, that you appear to be more susceptible to developing hip osteoarthritis once you've retired from your your sport. So, and there appears to be a greater prevalence in particular in those sports which are considered higher higher impact. So uh, sports such as uh, soccer or football, ice hockey, European handball, all the athletes that are playing those sports appear to be more susceptible to OA compared to athletes that may be or sports that aren't considered as higher impact. There also appears to be a, a relationship between having a prior hip injury at some point during your career and an increased risk or odds of developing hip OA again once you've retired from your sport. That might be something such as FAR syndrome or a label tear potentially. We, we don't know in great detail what type of hip injuries. And we, we generally know more about elite level male athletes as opposed to female athletes. So we definitely need more information uh, in female athletes. But in essence, it appears that if you've played at an elite level sport, you have a, a greater risk of developing hip OA once you've retired from that sport. So Josh, we know a bit about, sounds like we know a bit about the prevalence incidence of hip OA in people who have played at an elite level or a professional level sport. What about for the vast majority of us who have played sport at a recreational level, what's our risk of, of developing hip OA later in life? So we probably know less in that space, Claire. So what I would say is, as I mentioned earlier, most of the research has been done in that elite level athlete. But what we may be able to sort of assume is, may, is that it would potentially be, you would may have a higher risk of developing OA compared to someone who may be sedentary. But I, I would dare say that it would probably be somewhere between the normal population prevalence and the elite level prevalence, so probably slightly higher. But we again, we don't know a lot in 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 sort of the recreational athlete at this point in time. Can we put a number on the prevalence of hip osteoarthritis in, say, the elite level athlete? It really is variable between studies. So some studies will say it's 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 forty percent, as high as forty to fifty percent of elite level 
athletes will have hippo A once uh, once they've retired, and then it, it gets a little bit closer to sort of somewhere around twenty percent as well. So probably it would, would range between twenty to twenty to forty five, fifty percent of of elite level athletes will have hippo A. But again, that's very athlete dependent or sport dependent and and studies dependent. And is it differing depending on the the how people have defined osteoarthritis, radiological versus symptomatic, like it does for the knee? Yeah, correct. So I think I think really broadly, studies will either classify OA as, as with radiographic measures, so a, a, a pelvis X-ray essentially, or as someone who has undergone a total joint replacement. But they'll also use a physician diagnosis as well. So they'll essentially ask the athlete, usually by a questionnaire. Have you ever been diagnosed with hip osteoarthritis by a, a medical doctor? So obviously, depending on the criteria they use, that will heavily influence the, the prevalence of OA. Let's pick up on this issue of the relationship between previous injury and hip OA, Josh. And I'm interested particularly in what link, if any, there is between hip morphology or the shape of the hip, femoral acetabular impingement syndrome, which you mentioned before, and hip OA. Is it a continuum that the shape of the hip then contributes to the FAI syndrome and then then the athlete's predisposed to hip OA? A slippery slope that once the athlete gets a bump on, on his or her hip, it's a given that they're going to end up with hip OA, or are we talking about something a little bit more complex? Yeah, so I suppose if we if we firstly focus on on hip morphology or hip shape, when we look at, at most studies um, investigating the the relationship between hip morphology and, and OA development, it appears that hip shape plays an important role in OA development, and it's considered to be the main etiological basis for hip OA. And now it's not I'm not saying that hip OA can't be caused by other things. But it appears, especially at the hip joint, that the hip shape appears to matter. We're talking about things such as cam morphology, pincer morphology, or acetabular dysplasia. But I think it's important to remember that our understanding of the importance of hip shape and OA development generally comes from community-based populations. So large studies of, of people living in the community that are not necessarily athletes. We don't have a lot of, of studies in the in athletes with specific hip shape. But often the, the the findings that we we have from the community based populations are transferred directly uh, into an athletic population. So that's really important to remember that we generally know less in the athletic population. In terms of hip shape and FAI syndrome, obviously we know that having a specific hip shape is important for the the development of of FAI syndrome. So you need to either have have cam morphology or pincer morphology or a combination of both. But just because you have the hip shape doesn't mean you will go on to develop FAI syndrome. So a lot of people will have cam morphology and or, and or pincer morphology and remain asymptomatic. And that's not only people living in the community, but also athletes. In, in football players, for example, around sort of 60 to 70% of football players, that's this is soccer in general I'm talking about, will have cam morphology and have no symptoms. So it's important to remember that you can have the hip shape and, and not always go on to develop FAI syndrome. In terms of FAI syndrome and hip osteoarthritis, we probably know even less in this space. If we consider FAI syndrome, so once the athlete, once an athlete potentially has become symptomatic and has the bone shape, the clinical signs and symptoms, and OA development, we generally know less in this space. There is some emerging evidence to show that hip shape is important in athletic populations when we consider OA um, development. We're not certain that that's causing, that one is causing the other. Is that kind of the the message? Because it looks like there's a whole, there's lots of bits and pieces 
that sort of point us in the direction, but we can't for certain say, yes, playing sport or the previous injury actually causes the hip away. That's the, the problem, isn't it? We can probably draw information from other studies, so from the community-based studies and some other um, some studies looking at um, athletic populations and uh, I suppose make an inference that maybe FAI syndrome is related to OA development in athletes. But in terms of larger epidemiological studies, we, we have none that I'm aware of at this point in time. Some of the work that we're doing at La Trobe University looking at the importance of, of bone shape and early hip OA development, so essentially the changes you would see on an MRI scan, so uh, label tears and, and cartilage loss, tells us that hip shape in particular, cam morphology is important to, to the structural change in the joint. But what was really interesting is when we actually looked at this in not only symptomatic people, so those with positive impingement test and longstanding hip and groin pain, but also in our control participants that had no symptoms, we actually found that the relationship between cam morphology and structural change, structural change sorry, existed in both groups. So it appears that this interaction between the hip shape and structural change is occurring in both in people with and without pain. So the the relevance of symptoms in that process is is still unknown, and we 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 don't, definitely do not know whether if you have the triad of symptoms, clinical signs, and imaging findings, that you're going to have a, a faster rate of joint change than someone who just, for example, has the, the bone morphology but um, no symptoms. That's really interesting, Josh. So, so what you're saying there is that I think, one, we need a whole lot more research in this area, particularly in athlete or athletic, highly ath- active athletic populations, because we just simply don't know whether the amount of loading that you're doing as a younger person then causes basically hip osteoarthritis later in life. And we, I guess we don't even know yet what proportion of active people athletes go on to develop hip osteoarthritis in their middle and older years. So, so that's one really important question for all of the people out there who are thinking about PhD studies and what questions, open questions do we have? That's one of them. And then I guess the other really interesting thing is this absence of a relationship between what we might think of as pointing us towards some kind of diagnosis of osteoarthritis, and that is symptoms, my hip hurts, or I've had these other kind of injuries at some point in my career. But that sounds like what you're saying is that that's not a very good indicator of either hip joint changes or hip osteoarthritis in relatively young people. When we look at symptoms, that becomes a little bit murky. So Obviously, we know, say, for example, in, in established our way that there's obviously a discord between structural change and symptoms. Until some of the work that we did at La Trobe University, no one had ever really investigated the younger athlete. It had been assumed for a long time that if you had MRI changes or bone morph- uh, specific bone-shaped cam morphology dysplasia, et cetera, that that was directly related to your symptoms. But again, it's similar to the older people. It's, it seems that there's this very complex and probably poorly understood relationship between the, the structural change in the joint and symptom development. We need the longer term studies to understand, okay, if you have, for example, cam morphology, is that, is that implicated in, in worsening symptoms over time or worsening joint structure over time in younger populations? And we just don't have that at this point in time. But I think if I was going to give the, re, uh, the listeners a, a take home, it would be that just because the athlete has a specific bone shape or even MRI changes, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are related to the symptoms that they are presenting to you with. So it comes back to that old adage of treat the athlete, not the scan. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Like some of our our work shows that 
around 60 to 70% of athletes will, without pain will have a label tear. And the same could be said for cartilage loss. Around 50% of athletes without pain will have cartilage loss on MRI. It's really interesting, Josh. And I think this is a good point for us just to jump back and clarify the, how you would diagnose femoroacetabular impingement syndrome and that that's a very clear diagnosis. Can you run us through the difference between CAM morphology and FAI syndrome? When um, we're talking about CAM morphology, so that, that is the shape of the bone, so an aspherical femoral head. So as I mentioned earlier, we can, we can have many, many athletes have that bone shape and it's generally thought that that bone shape in the majority of athletes will develop during skeletal growth. And if it has developed during skeletal growth, then we, we, we're essentially calling that primary CAM morphology. For a diagnosis of FAI syndrome, you need to have a, a combination of either CAM and or pincer morphology symptoms. So when we talk about symptoms, it can be hip and or groin pain. So then you may also have an associated clicking, catching, or locking in the joint. And then the clinical signs, the traditional clinical assessment has been positive flexion adduction internal rotation test or an impingement test. But we know from a lot of the work done by Mike Ryman, who I'm sure many of the listeners will be familiar with, the FADIR test has good sensitivity, but very poor specificity. So essentially, it's better used as a, a, a screening tool as opposed to ruling in the presence of FAI syndrome. So we need to be careful when we interpret the, the relevance of the, the clinical assessment. There's been some more recent work done by, by Anders Paulson, who's a researcher in Scandinavia, and he found that prone internal rotation, so essentially the patient or the athlete is lying face down and you are keeping their hip in, in neutral flexion extension, abduction, adduction, and essentially internally rotating the hip joints, and you're looking for reproduction of concordant pain or restricted range is actually a specific test for FAI syndrome. That may be one test that enables us to rule in the, the presence of FAI syndrome. Maybe also restricted internal rotation in 90 degrees. But again, that is probably not diagnostic of the condition. It's more that it, it comes alongside often when, when people have FAI syndrome. So it's associated with it rather than diagnostic for it. Now, Josh, you're actively working in the clinic as well as doing all of this research that you're you're leading in Melbourne at La Trobe University. What does the best research tell us about what works for managing hip pain in athletes? I, I guess what I'm asking you is in your clinical and research experience, what do you find works well and what doesn't work? So if we look at the research firstly, there is evidence to support the role of physiotherapy in managing FAI syndrome when we, when we think about pain reduction and improvement in function. We don't know whether physiotherapy will slow someone's disease trajectory, so we don't know whether if, we have, if they have physiotherapy, we, we can prevent IOA development. In, in terms of clinical settings, what, what seems to work is I think that we need to take a, a holistic approach for the athlete. So thinking about obviously things that we can assess in the clinic, so strength, range of motion, movement impairments, muscular endurance, but also considering the, the psychosocial components, athletes with FAI syndrome obviously have, often have fear of movement. They often have aberrant beliefs in terms of their imaging findings and the relevance of their imaging findings and what that means for their career. And they need to often be addressed for an athlete to engage in a, a physiotherapy program. For example, if, if you have an athlete that is fearful to move because they have CAM morphology and a label tear, then it's unlikely that they're going to engage in a program of, of strengthening, which is going to load that joint and potentially put their joint in positions which they associate with, with, with harm. 
I think it's really important to be able to identify impairments that you can treat with your physiotherapy approach. So things such as strength, muscle, muscular endurance, trunk endurance or trunk strength, movement impairments. They're probably the, the four things that I would generally look at when seeing an athlete with some sort of hippolytic condition, whether it be FIS syndrome or, or a label, label tear, for example. And that gives you some targets with your treatment. And also you can you can show an athlete that you might be able to compare those um, those measures to normative values that we know in, in from their chosen sports. So there's there's a number of studies looking at um, normative strength values around the hip complex in in football for example or soccer for example and other sports. So I think assessing those those key areas and then being able to target your treatment to address those impairments is really critical. I think it's important to give them realistic timeframes. So this is not a quick fix. A physiotherapy program should last last at a minimum 12 weeks to be able to determine whether it's been effective or not. And then, as I mentioned earlier, taking your time to explain the relevance of imaging findings, educating them about what we do and don't know about CAM morphology, FAR syndrome, and airway development is really, really important. Josh, how do you talk to athletes about imaging findings? You're, you're reading imaging reports and looking at imaging day-to-day in your research work. So how do you translate what you see in the research and what you see when you look at imaging to something that makes sense for athletes and that isn't about sort of provoking this kind of fear response or? I think one of the, the biggest, like often one of the, the questions that they want to know is, is about CAM morphology or because on the radiology report, it's often been reported as a CAM lesion, a deformity or an abnormality. So I think spending time talking to them about when that bone shape developed and how it develops and its relevance is really, really critical. If I'm talking to an athlete who is concerned about their imaging findings, I think firstly asking the questions about what their belief is around these imaging findings. And often they've they've read terms such as deformity or lesion or abnormality, and it makes them think that this is something which has happened acutely. And if we take CAM morphology, for instance, in the majority of athletes, that CAM shape has been there since early in adolescence, so potentially as young as um, 12 or 13 years of age. So it's actually been with them for a long period of time, and often they don't understand that. They think it's something that happened exactly when their injury started or when their groin pain first started, you know, might be two months ago. Giving them information around that is really important, and it makes them question, okay, well, how, how come it hasn't been relevant for me until now. I've been playing the same sport, been doing the same training loads for a number of years, and all of a sudden this bone shape has become relevant. In terms of things such as label tears, what I would often do is present them with some of the, the studies that show that these, these MRI findings are particularly common in people without pain. Suppose it just starts to get them to question, okay, well, is this relevant to me? And potentially challenge some of these unhelpful beliefs that come around these imaging findings. I think the other issue here, and we've talked a bit about loading, training load, and then loading the skeleton from a young age. And I think we're fairly confident now that loading the skeleton at a young age, weight-bearing loading, has some relationship. We perhaps won't call it a causative relationship, but we're fairly confident that it's got some relationship with developing either the, the morphology, the CAM or the pincer morphology, particularly the CAM morphology and or osteoarthritis in the future. So given all of that, Josh, should we should we stop athletes loading their hips? Is this a debate around, well, we want to protect the long-term hip health of these athletes. So is it really even a good idea to play these high weight-bearing sports in the first place? 
Yeah, that's a it's a very tricky and um, question, and it has multiple layers, obviously. So I think if we think about firstly the the longer term impact of having cam shape or cam morphology in the hip joint, we know that even though it does increase your risk of developing hip OA, then not all people with cam cam morphology will actually go on to develop OA. So the majority of people with that bone shape actually won't develop OA over time. It's assumed that if you have it you're guaranteed to have hip OA at some point in later in life. And that's just, we just can't say that based on the available evidence. If we consider the role of joint loading or playing sport and, and cam morphology development, and should we be stopping young children playing these higher impact sports, I think we need to consider the potential benefits of playing sport. So obviously uh, participation in a, in a team um, it has obviously benefits for child health a number of other areas in their life. So I think if we're considering removing children from sport at the moment, the, the benefits appear to outweigh the, I suppose, the, the, the cons of participating in sport. And the other consideration is that if you're thinking about an elite level or potentially an elite level youth athlete, if we actually remove them from their chosen sport during those, those periods when we know CAM morphology develops, develops, so between, say, 10 to 14 years of age, that's really essential for their skill development as well. So even though they may not develop cam morphology, they're going to be they're going to fall behind other athletes that are playing sport and are more frequently when it comes to skill development. So we're actually probably preventing them from developing the necessary skills to actually go on and make a potentially a an elite team later in their adolescence and into their adult life. The majority of of athletes with cam morphology or majority of people with cam morphology actually won't go on and develop hip osteoarthritis. So I think there's that is a, there's, you're juggling a lot of balls if you're trying to make that decision, and I don't know if we have all the answers at this point in time. I think that's a, a great point, Josh. That ultimately, like anything in life, there's risks and there's benefits, and it's for each individual athlete and parents and coach and people around them to weigh up the pros and cons. But ultimately, if I've understood you correctly, really from what we understand about the relationship between joint loading cam morphology or the shape of the hip and then developing osteoarthritis later in life. It's just the benefits of playing sport, the benefits of, of physical activity and the benefits of health and wellbeing benefits of being active are really far outweighing the, the risk of developing hip osteoarthritis later in life. Yes, some people will end up with hip OA, but it's, it's a very small proportion of people who are playing sport from a young age. I think I think that's a fair summary, and that's based on what we know at this point in time. Like that, our, our opinion around this may change as as new evidence emerges. But if we're thinking about here and now, then I think the the benefits far outweigh the potential risk of OA development in later life. If we're thinking about a, a younger athlete, I think this is a nice launching pad into talking about what are the research, what are the burning research questions that we need to help us move forward to give better advice to parents and athletes and coaches. We generally know less in athletic populations, so we need to know more about the importance of cam morphology and, and joint structural change in an athlete to correctly advise them about, okay, are they at greater risk of OA development earlier compared to someone without the bone shape? So we're doing some work in that space here at La Trobe University and hopefully in the next probably six to 12 months, we should have some studies coming out that hopefully will will fill that gap. And we also need to understand whether if we intervene early in this potentially an athlete at risk of OA development, can we actually slow their, their trajectory? So can we actually, I suppose, firstly prevent OA development or can we put things in place that actually potentially slow their, their trajectory 
I think in the physiotherapy space, we we need to do better providing evidence to support our interventions. So we need randomized control trials to look at best practice physiotherapy and what does that look like? And can we design an optimal treatment for a specific person? So, so tailored treatment approaches for individuals is probably something that we, we need to potentially consider. But also consider, okay, is our, our physiotherapy interventions actually improving cartilage health and slowing someone's trajectory along this OA continuum is probably something that we need to understand to a greater level as well. Yeah, some really important big picture questions that are going to help us as musculoskeletal rehab clinicians help the athletes that we work with. Dr. Josh Heary, thanks for joining me on JOSPT Insights to walk us through hip osteoarthritis and the challenges of working with young and, and older athletes today. Thanks, Claire. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time. Mm